Okay, so we talked about Raman spectroscopy last time. And do a little bit of review uh, since it's perhaps not a uh, straightforward thing to understand. We said that Raman scattering is basically the collision of a photon and a molecule that's inelastic, so energy is transferred from one to the other. If it's transferred from the photon to the molecule, the photon loses energy. We call that anti-Stokes scattering. And if it's transferred from the molecule to the photon, the photon the molecule to, uh, from the photon to the molecule, that's Stokes scattering. From the molecule to the photon is anti-Stokes scattering. So in an energy level diagram, we have a photon coming in, exciting an atom that's in a lower energy state, an atom or a molecule, actually a molecule, it's in a low energy state, up to some virtual energy state where it decays down to a real state. The difference in these energy levels is due to the vibration of the molecule. And the photon that gets emitted here is the Stokes scattering. And then if we have a molecule that's already vibrating and it absorbs a photon, it can decay into a lower energy state, give its energy to the photon, and what comes out is a higher energy photon. That's the anti-Stokes scattering. So if you send in light that has an energy that's greater than the energy level separation of the vibration. The molecular vibrations usually correspond to infrared transitions. So if you send in visible or near infrared or ultraviolet light, then you can get this scattering process. And the light that comes out, you'll have some of the incident photons that are unaffected, that are non-scattered. You'll get some that are shifted down in energy and some that are shifted up in energy. Generally more that are shifted down in energy because you start off with more population in the ground state than you do in the excited states. So there's generally more Stokes radiation than anti-Stokes radiation. But what comes out of this interaction region is light from your incident beam plus the light that's shifted around that frequency. So in an experiment, you'd have some interaction chamber. So this might be a, a glass cell that has some gas in it, something like that. You'd send in light And because this is a very weak effect, only affecting about a part in 10 to the 7 photons, we generally try to enhance 
the effect by either using a, a delay line or some sort of multi-pass scheme to increase the amount of power incident. And then we look at the light that scatters. And in order to see that, because it's not collinear with the incident beam, we need some collection optics. And then some sort of spectrometer over here to observe the frequency shift of the scattered light. There's also Rayleigh scattering, which is elastic scattering of the incident photon that doesn't change its wavelength. And so on a spectrograph, what you would expect to see is a peak in the intensity as a function of whether this be frequency or wave number. And then at lower energy wavelengths, you'd have Stokes scattering. And at higher energy wavelengths, you'd have anti-Stokes. And that was the linear Raman effect. Yeah, Neil? It's instantaneous if there's not a real energy level here. And so if, if you were able to see it, or I think the, most, the clearest picture would probably be a photon bouncing off of a molecule and causing a vibration. I mean, that is more. Um, more analogous to like a mechanics example. Um, the energy levels, we say it goes to a virtual level. And because it's virtual, it can't remain there for any length of time. So it has to be instantaneous. You can have um, resonant Raman scattering, where this corresponds to a real energy level. And then uh, you get larger amounts of scattering because you increase the interaction time. OK, couple comments. Um, last time, we had an expression for the magnitude of the scattering. It scaled, it was an expression for the cross-section. And it was the fourth power of the frequency times and divided by a bunch of stuff. And the question was, what is that the frequency of? Okay, it's the frequency of the incident light. Okay, so that's why if this is an infrared transition, corresponds to say 10 microns. Um, I said you want photons that have a higher energy than that transition. And in fact, the larger the energy of the photons, the higher their frequency, and the stronger the effect will be. Okay, so that's why you might use ultraviolet or blue light to probe this transition, rather than red or near-infrared. Okay, and it's the same reason that the sky is blue. Rayleigh scattering also scales um, with, with frequency in this way. 
So the bluer light scatters more. Okay, so you generally want to use sort of the highest energy probe light you have available. Because the ultraviolet is scattering. Yeah. Now you still block. There's still a lot more light coming directly from the sun than there is from the sky, right? I mean, if you can look at the sky and it doesn't hurt your eyes, you look at the sun and it does. So even in the visible, you're getting far more radiation direct than you're getting scattered. But if you put the in, in sort of conceptually, what you're saying is right. You can. There's very little infrared light that's scattered in the atmosphere, but quite a bit more ultraviolet. Okay, so that's, um, that's the linear Raman effect. And then we talked about the uh, nonlinear effect, which we called stimulated Raman scattering. And this was a four-wave mixing process, or a two-photon interaction. And the one way we can think about it is a photon comes in to a system that initially is in the ground state or has most of its population in the lowest energy level, it excites molecular vibrations through this Raman effect. And once you have vibrating molecules, those vibrating molecules cause the index of refraction of the material to change at the frequency they vibrate at. And as a result, this incoming beam gets modulated by the vibration and that frequency shifts the light um, into what is the Stokes and anti-Stokes beams. It's one way of thinking about it. Um, another way of thinking about it is because the polarizability of this molecule depends on the electric field, the dipole moment depends on the polarization times the electric field. There's a nonlinear relationship between the applied electric field and the population of the molecules that, that vibrate. So there's a nonlinear effect. And what that means is, in very general terms, the efficiency of Rayleigh scattering has a component that depends on the electric field squared. And so if you have an incident photon of one frequency and then a scattered photon of another frequency, those two things add up to produce the electric field that the, that the molecules see. When you square them, you get a cross term. That cross term has a frequency that drives this vibrational transition. So there's an electric field oscillating at the vibrational frequency when the electric field is strong enough. Okay, when that happens, that drives molecules to vibrate, and that reinforces this Raman scattering, and this, the Raman scattering becomes much more significant. That means there's a lot more molecules in the upper state, and that means the anti-Stokes radiation increases dramatically. So instead of having a little bit of Stokes and a very little bit of anti-Stokes, you can get a significant amount of both. And so that's where we're going to pick up with today's lecture. Um, so we derived 
or at least uh, sort of highlighted important parts of the derivation of this effect. One of the things we saw is that our expression for the Stokes radiation field, this is the electric field of the Stokes wave, as it goes through material, has an exponential decay that depends on the losses of the material and an exponential gain that depends on the Raman activity of the material. And if that gain exceeds the losses, then the Stokes wave will build up. Otherwise, it will decay. So it's a nonlinear effect. And when, here's an expression for the gain term. This, uh, this term is what I call G here. And when it's greater than the loss term, which is over here, then the stimulated Raman scattering turns on. So this loss term is a constant. It's just the loss going through the material. This term, though, depends on the applied electric field squared. So as you turn up the power going through a material, if it's Raman active, so its polarizability is time dependent as the molecules vibrate. And as you turn up the power, at some point you reach a threshold where this term is bigger than this term. And instead of the Stokes wave being a weak scattering field that slightly absorbs, it becomes a field that gets driven by this, these molecular vibrations. So it builds up exponentially. And this analysis um, assumes, so this, the solution to the differential equations that I'm quoting here assumes the initial Stokes wave is small. So once it builds up and it depletes the power in the incident beam, then you can get equal. It doesn't exponentially build up forever. It's taking energy from the incident beam. Okay, so this, this solution is only valid in the limit where um, the incident beam is large compared to the Stokes wave. Okay, so what we have in the uh, photon picture is a pair of photons coming in from our incident beam. And one produces Stokes scattering and excites a molecule into a vibrational state. And then the other one is absorbed and allows that molecule to decay. So these two photons scatter off a molecule and produce a higher energy and a lower energy photon. So that's the uh, Stokes and the anti-Stokes waves. Now in order for that process to be efficient, in order for that exponential buildup to occur, the fields that are created need to obey conservation laws. So they need to obey conservation of energy. So we have two, two things happening. We have a, a Stokes scattering and an anti-Stokes scattering. Each one of those things is an inelastic collision. An incident photon and a molecule collide. They exchange some energy. A little bit of energy gets lost to heat or linear motion of the molecule. So that process obeys conservation of energy. So if that happens twice, the whole system should obey conservation of energy as well. So that's fairly trivial to say that energy is conserved. Um, momentum needs to be conserved as well. So when we talk about conservation of momentum when we have photons, the momentum of a photon
is h bar k, just like the energy of a photon is h bar omega. Those expressions are analogous. Since k is a vector, it's 2 pi over lambda, whatever wavelength we're dealing with, and it has a direction associated with the direction of the photon, that will give the direction of the momentum of the photon. So we say energy needs to be conserved, which just means that the sum of the frequencies of the Stokes and anti-Stokes scattered light can't be greater than the twice the frequency of the incident light. Momentum needs to be conserved. And so here, if we neglect any momentum carried by the molecule, just require the momentum of the photons be conserved, then what this says is two incident photons have to have the same momentum as the Stokes and the anti-Stokes photons combined. That's conservation momentum just for the photons. And that's just talking about like the single particle that these two photons interact with? Not yeah. about the mass of them, sorry, the whole. Yeah, so it's assuming that the photons come in, they interact with the material, and then they leave the material unchanged afterwards, and the photons go out. So I think what you meant is microscopically? Yeah, here or microscopically? Like, this is dealing with just one, if I had that particle, or if I just You actually will. So this is both microscopic for a single photon, but then um, if we apply that to every photon in the beam, then the results hold for the macroscopic beam as well. So actually, I just see like circles on the output. Yeah. So you're a step ahead. Okay. So we can. That's written up here uh, in a slightly different form, where everything's written on the left. But that's um. That's a common expression in nonlinear optics that's called the phase matching condition. It says that the, um, if this is the wave vector, as you propagate through a material, a distance L, K times L tells you how much the phase has changed. The amount that the phase changes for the incident field has to equal the amount that the phase changes for the, the scattered fields, which is why we call it phase matching. Okay, so phase matching can be described vectorally from this equation. So if this is a vector equation, then the sum of these vectors had to add up to be 0. But, and that would be trivial, like in a vacuum. In a vacuum, if, let's see, from omega over k is c over n, the phase velocity of light is equal to omega over k. That's what this expression says. And so in a vacuum where n is equal to 1, it says omega is proportional to k. Right, so a conservation of energy says 2 omega incident equals omega stokes plus omega anti-stokes. So this is required by conservation of energy. 
So this condition is met. If k is directly proportional to omega, then this condition would also be met. Right, we could just write k as omega n over c, and the n over c's would cancel. Okay, so let's do that. Let's take this expression and let's replace k with omega n over c. And these have a direction, so I'll just use k hat as the direction of that. Um, yeah. Thank you. So I'm just replacing k with omega n over c. Now the reason that this is not a trivial expression to solve, the reason it's not automatically met, that the c's certainly cancel out, they're constants. And if n is constant as well, it would cancel out, and we would recover the conservation of energy constraint. But n is not constant in most materials. In a vacuum, n is constant, it equals 1. But in a vacuum, you don't have molecules that are Raman active. If you have Raman active molecules, you have a material. The material has an index of refraction that generally has dispersion, meaning its index of refraction changes as a function of wavelength. So we derive that from the classical electron oscillator model the first month of class. So what that says is, this is, I'll call that n naught. this is n sub s, and this is n sub as. These may be three different values because these frequencies are three different frequencies and the index of refraction is a function of frequency. So, omega n So you have dispersion that causes the index of refraction to be a function of frequency. Okay, so these this equation will not in general, B, well, that will not be met for an arbitrary incident Stokes and anti Stokes frequency. Okay, so we can say that the magnitude of those values generally won't add up to be zero. So we won't have a trivial case of phase matching. So one way that these can be made to add up to zero is if we consider the vector nature of the k vectors. So what we're saying is that the sum of two k vectors, two of the k naught vectors, minus a ks vector minus a kas vector has to equal zero. So on a vector diagram, the two k naught vectors have to add to the sum of the anti-Stokes and the Stokes k vector. And 
clearly if they're all in the same direction, that can't be met if the material has dispersion. If the material has dispersion, then these, these vectors are not uh, directly proportional to the size of k naught. If there was no dispersion, all these vectors would have the same length. Or right, not exactly the same length. I guess the Stokes would be slightly smaller, the anti-Stokes would be slightly longer. But so if their magnitudes don't add up to zero, but their vectors have to, that means that the anti-Stokes and the Stokes wave have to be at different angles than the incident wave. Right? In order for the Stokes and anti-Stokes fields to be adding coherently with the new fields that are being generated. So you can think about this as a material with light going in, and that light is going to go straight through in whatever direction it's incident at. And then you get scattering in all directions. Stokes and anti-Stokes scattering go in all directions. And they propagate at different speeds than the incident field. And so if you think about a scattering event that occurs here, and then another scattering event that occurs here some later point in time, you'll get scattered light from both of those. And because they're excited by the same beam, there's a, a phase relationship between those. The phase difference between this light scattered here and that scattered there is just whatever phase the green light accumulates going from here to there. And because the blue waves travel at a different speed, the waves or the rays coming out of the second scattering will only add constructively with the rays coming from the first scattering point when the angle between them is such that this path length difference is some integer number of wavelengths. Okay, so depending on how much the speed of these rays differ from that of the incident beam de determines how much that path length difference is and what angle the light will add up constructively at. So there's light scattering in all directions, but in one particular direction, it adds up constructively. And what you'd see then is a cone of light coming out. There'd be some scattering in all directions, but there'd be a coherent superposition in direction described by this cone. So most of the Stokes and anti-Stokes scattering would occur along a cone. And the angle would be different for Stokes and anti-Stokes. So you'd see your incident light and then two cones of scattered light. Well, there will be scattering all throughout. So I just picked two points to draw. But um, no, you wouldn't. You can use the amount of scattering to determine the density because the cross section is proportional to the density. Okay, but you wouldn't use this geometric. That was just for, 
for concreteness, I chose two particular points. Okay, so this stimulated Raman scattering is nice because it produces much stronger output than the spontaneous Raman scattering. So once this nonlinearity turns on, the scattered light gets amplified as it propagates through your material. So some of the problems of, of Raman scattering, low photon counts, um, sort of go away. And you get uh, a much more easily detected beam. Now one of the problems with this stimulated Raman scattering is in order to activate it, you need to have high enough intensity so that your gains exceed the losses. And so that can be, can be difficult to achieve, or at least it, it, it's a constraint that, uh, it's an added constraint on the experiment that is often problematic. Okay, so there's a method around that called coherent anti-Stokes Raman spectroscopy. It basically produces stimulated Raman scattering, but it sort of circumvents the issue of needing high power to get it started. The idea is that instead of using a very strong incident beam to pump some of the light into the, or to get your Stokes photon and your anti-Stokes photons, you can send in a second laser that has the wavelength of that laser tuned to the wavelength of the Stokes or anti-Stokes photons. In this case, it's the anti-Stokes photon. And so the, the sum of that anti-Stokes laser wavelength and the incident laser wavelength will drive the vibrations that produce this, this stimulated effect. So in the first case, in stimulated Raman scattering, you have about one part in 10 to the 7 of the photons getting scattered. The interaction of that scattered light with the incident light drives molecular vibrations. In this case, we just send in two lasers. The interaction of those two, two lasers drive the electron vibration. So coherent anti-Stokes Raman spectroscopy is usually called CARS. I have a, had a colleague when I was at Stanford who did his uh, thesis work on the coherent anti-Stokes Raman spectroscopy of um, molecular gases that were cooled to avoid Doppler broadening by sending them through uh, at high pressure through a very small opening. So you get a supersonic flow of the material. When gas expands, it cools, right? So he, uh, he was trying to get his advisor to let him publish his thesis titled Supersonic Jet Cars. But he lost that battle. But it's usually known as CARS, Coherent Anti-Stokes Raman Spectroscopy. So here's a little picture of it where we're sending in our incident beams. And these incident photons can produce Raman scattering. And like I said, that, that Stokes scattered photon plus the incident beam add up in the nonlinear medium to cause vibrations um, between these two energy levels. But here we introduce an additional laser that has that Stokes wavelength 
And the interaction of these two lasers drive that, that vibrational transition. That pumps atoms into this upper vibrational state. And then you can get, essentially get gain as you get a uh, high population in this upper energy level state. And that's the, uh, the stimulated anti-Stokes beam here that comes out. Neil? There's, yes, that's true. So you don't, well, yeah, I, I was kind of wondering that myself. Is there an actual population inversion, or is the term stimulated? Does that not imply a gain? Yeah, I need to look into that. I don't know the answer. Okay, so the interaction of these, these two beams causes the molecules to vibrate. That excites, in this, in this picture, it excites the upper energy level and allows the anti-Stokes scattering uh, to be amplified to get more anti-Stokes scattering. And so this experiment here is an example of car spectroscopy. Here we've got an argon ion laser pumping a dye laser. So this is a green laser. It pumps the dye laser that's producing orange. Maybe that's yellow, 584. I guess that's yellow. And some of it's being picked off, and both are going through a sample. So the purpose of this dye laser, that's the incident beam. It's going to drive a, uh, a Raman scattering process inside this liquid nitrogen. This argon ion laser, you can see it's drawn coming through and crossing paths with that incident beam. It's at a different wavelength. So it's at 514 as opposed to 584. So it's slightly tuned to the blue. So that's not surprising because it's the pump for this dye laser. So the dye laser has to have a higher wavelength than the pump in order to have lower energy per photon than what it's being pumped with. So conservation of energy requires that. And then these beams are crossing in the liquid. Why would they cross? Why would they not be sent in collinearly? Yeah, so it's this picture we, we drew here. The Stokes and anti-Stokes radiation are only going to be phase matched when they're at a particular angle. And so this incident beam, in order to be, have maximal efficiency, should come in at, separated by that angle. And that way it can, the, uh, the interactions that occur in this interaction region will be coherent. And uh, we'll add constructively for all the, the different scattering that comes out. And the scattering that's measured is at 459 nanometers. So there's a filter here that blocks the other two wavelengths. And that 459 nanometer 
It shows it going into a monochromator. So a monochromator is just a grading spectrometer. It's a grading spectrometer in whatever wavelength that spectrometer is set at. That's what, that's what wavelength makes it through the instrument. So it makes it through the instrument and is detected by a photomultiplier. So this whole thing could be considered a grading spectrometer. Okay, and they may have, depending on what the purpose of the experiment is, they may be expecting the radiation at 459.5 nanometers. Hence, they can use a filter here and a monochromator tuned to that frequency. And then they might be measuring, for example, the concentration of something in this liquid nitrogen or, um, or something else that affects the amount of scattered light. Or maybe you don't know the frequency that, you're, that the light will be scattered at. Maybe you're trying to identify what material that is. So you might scan this monochromator, observe the wavelength of the light that makes it through, and that would tell you um, the frequency shift due to the, due to the Raman scattering, which would tell you the vibrational frequency, and could allow you to infer something about the material that was, that was here, the molecules that were there. Right, so since complex molecules generally have lots of modes of freedom, they have lots of different frequencies at which they can vibrate at. So if you measure the Stokes and anti-Stokes radiation from a molecule, you get sort of like a fingerprint. It tells you all the different modes of vibration that they have. And the more complex the molecule, the more intricate the fingerprint, and the better the more information you have to differentiate that molecule from other possible, other possible molecules. So if you put in an unknown sample here, and if you have enough intensity to do Raman spectroscopy, you can learn a lot about the complex molecules in that sample. You don't learn anything about the atoms in the sample, because atoms aren't Raman active. And the simpler the molecules, this is diatomic nitrogen, it's a simple molecule, the less, the fewer Stokes and anti-Stokes scattering lines you'll have, the fewer modes of vibration they have. Okay, so we mentioned last time for uh, spontaneous Raman scattering that because the scattering light is so weak, there's some special techniques that need to be used. <coughs> so we mentioned a couple experimental techniques. Here's a few more. Um, basically, the problem is that it's difficult to separate fluorescence from Raman scattering. They're both light that scatters off, or that comes off of the sample isotropically. One is from scattering, one is from absorption, and then a fluorescence. And they're both weak. The fluorescence can be much larger then the Raman effect, depending on, or usually is much larger than the Raman effect, unless you have a, either a, a unless you have a resonant Raman effect, or you have enough intensity that it's a stimulated Raman effect. Okay, so to deal with this, there's a few different things you can do. Uh, this is pulled out of, I think, Demtroder. One is you can purify the sample to remove sources of fluorescence. So the fluorescence may come from the molecule that you're trying to detect. 
but it's possible it also comes from something that's in the substrate that's not what you're trying to detect. Right? So if you can purify the sample and minimize the other atoms and molecules that you're not interested in, then you can reduce undesirable fluorescence. One way to do that is by heating. When you heat, impurities can diffuse out. So it suggests baking it or just heating it up with the pump laser might be enough. You can use ultra-fast pump lasers. You know that the Raman scattering process is an instantaneous process, whereas fluorescence has a lifetime associated with it. So if you send in a, a very short pulse, any Raman scattering should instantaneously scatter, but fluorescence will have some time delay. So if you have a, a time-resolvable pump, you should be able to resolve the uh, photons coming out as whether or not they correspond to when the pump was there. If they don't, then you know they're fluorescence. So the shorter the, the shorter the pump, the greater you can increase uh, the intensity of Raman scattering during the time frame of that pump. <coughs> and then you can use longer wavelengths of pump light. So you can use near-infrared rather than visible or ultraviolet to reduce the amount of fluorescence. So why does that reduce the amount of fluorescence? Yeah, less states to be excited. So there may be a lot of upper states. And if we're driving the system like this, then it's possible that we um, cause fluorescence from absorption into any of these lower states. But if we can drive the system to a virtual energy level that's below any higher energy level states, or below uh, more of the higher energy level states, we'll reduce the amount of fluorescence by having fewer paths for fluorescence. Okay, so those are a few things you can do to uh, separate scattering from the fluorescence. So where is this technique used? So I mentioned it's used when you want to differentiate complex molecules. Okay, so it's been done in all sorts of different applications. Analysis of, of rocks. So just trying to determine what molecules make up the rocks. So lunar Martian rocks. Um, the medical field uses this technique to monitor the molecules that people are breathing, for example. Um, in this case, monitoring the amount of an anesthetic that's in the person's lungs allow, people, allow the anesthesiologist, I guess, to adjust the amount of anesthesia in real time and it, in a non-invasive way. Right, so you're not monitoring their blood, you're monitoring their breathing. Um, measure temperature. I mentioned before the relative population of the Stokes and anti-Stokes scattering comes from the fact that the Boltzmann distribution of the upper energy levels is temperature dependent. Therefore, measuring their relative amplitude gives you a measure of the temperature. And I also mentioned that there were some um, some relationship between the orientation of the sample and the direction of the incident light that determined how much scattering there is. So you can use 
the amount of scattering to determine the orientation if you know the, uh, the geometry of the sample. Okay, so here's a plot. There it is. It shows the analysis of uh, chemicals in a reaction. This is a pharmaceutical and lactose, and they're being mixed. So presumably they want to be mixed to a certain fraction. And this is the Raman spectrum of the lactose. This is it for the pharmaceutical. And this is plotted on a linear scale. So when you measure the mix, you can look for peaks that are present in one of the ingredients and the peaks that are present in the other and look at the ratio of their intensities and infer the ratio of the, the different reactants that you've got, the different constituents that you've got. Here's an example of real-time monitoring of products of a reaction. So we have acetate and acetic, ac acetic acid in a reaction that takes one and a half hours, or that are monitored over one and a half hours. And the acetate has a big Raman shift over here at about 840 inverse centimeters. The acetic acid has a different Raman shift. And so by observing the Raman spectrum over time, you can see that as the uh, concentration of acetic acid goes down, that of the acetate goes up. So another example of complex molecules that have this Raman activity being used um, or being monitored to infer the concentration. Okay, so if you want to implement Raman spectroscopy in the lab, you can build up your own experiment from scratch, or there are some devices you can buy, um, Raman spectrometers that will do a lot of this for you. Um, you can get little handheld things or um, things that integrate with your computer. And the reason you can do this is a couplefold. One is the scattered light is isotropic. So you can send light into uh, material and you can look at light that's scattered back just as well as you can look in any direction. You can look at the light that's scattered back and that means you can deliver the light through a fiber and bring it back through a fiber. And because you can use visible or ultraviolet wavelengths, you know, really visible wavelengths, you can use an optical fiber. If you had to do some sort of direct spectroscopy on molecules, looking for molecular vibration, you need to use infrared light. And you can't send infrared light through fibers, or at least uh, you get a lot of distortion if you do because there's a lot of uh, absorption peaks due to the OH radicals in the silica. So the the absorption of fibers has a lot of structure in the infrared. So this is a fiber delivery mechanism. Here's what the, the tip looks like, just particular wavelength coming out, being focused down to a point. Those focusing optics also collect the light coming back. It gets separated by a dichroic mirror and comes back through a, another fiber. We look at a plot of a Raman spectrum on the bottom here in the near infrared. This is from uh, I think about two to five microns. 
and compare it to the uh, same spectrum measured directly using, uh, I don't know whether that was absorption spectroscopy or, uh, or, or not, but it was a more direct uh, probe where the absorption of specific wavelengths was directly measured. The Raman spectrum is much cleaner. You can see, for example, in this region, you've got a smooth spectrum where the absorption spectrum, you have a lot of absorption peaks that correspond to other atoms and molecules besides the uh, one being studied. So I mentioned that uh, carbon dioxide and water have a lot of absorption lines in the infrared. So that's the cause for a lot of this structure. And so if, if you don't want to purge your experiment to remove all the water and carbon dioxide, or you don't want to do a very careful differential analysis with your sample and without it, you can instead do Raman spectroscopy and only get the uh, structure from your molecule. Yeah. Water and carbon dioxide are not Raman active. So they don't produce Raman shift. But they do absorb in the infrared. So if you're doing infrared spectroscopy, you get the whole mess. Now, you could still have other molecules that contaminate your sample that produce Raman shifts that aren't related to your molecule. But uh, the, the more common water and carbon, the, the things that are sort of present in, in the air uh, would not produce a problem. Okay, in order to do that, though, you need to have enough intensity, enough sensitivity to see what's a very small amount of scattered light. So it's inherently not a very sensitive technique. So compared to direct absorption or uh, emission spectroscopy, you need very good sensitivity. You either need high concentrations of the material you're, you're looking at or very high intensity laser power with very sensitive detectors. So it's not really a technique that's good for detecting trace amounts of some compound. It's good for identifying what the compound is. Other disadvantages, I mentioned that fluorescence is a common problem. There's ways to mitigate that, but fluorescence looks a lot like scattered light. And oftentimes, the high sensitivity means you need high power, sensitive detectors, and all these things add cost to the experiment, cost and complexity and knowledge requirements. OK, so to summarize the last two lectures then on Raman spectroscopy, um, Raman spectroscopy is a method for observing molecular vibrations. Molecular, because atoms don't have Raman activity. They don't have a time-dependent a, a time polarizability that's necessary for Raman activity. Um, it's a method that sends light in and scatters it off of material. We observe the frequency shift of the scattered light to infer the vibrational frequencies of the material. If you have enough intensity, you can get this parametric mixing of the scattered and the incident waves that produce more scattered waves. That's the stimulated Raman scattering. And it can be done directly where the uh, material is illuminated with a particular wavelength. That generates the scattered light, and those two frequencies interact. Or you can just start with two different frequencies that interact, and that's called CARS. 
coherent anti-Stokes Raman spectroscopy. Uh, it's a very common technique. If you search the literature for spectroscopy, you'll come up with a lot of hits of Raman spectroscopy. If you look at you know, things that are being done in industry, chemical analysis, um, sort of in almost any industry, food packaging, medical, um, anything that involves chemicals, Raman spectroscopy is a very common tool for keeping track of, of those chemicals. Okay, that wraps up everything I have to say about Raman spectroscopy. So I'll take any questions on that before I talk about the test. Okay, so let's do just a little bit of review. Uh, the test is going to focus on methods of spectroscopy. So the first test focused on the fundamentals. Right, so we learned, we did a lot of math that described how light and matter interacted. Um, but now we're going to talk about the different methods. So I've gone through my notes and sort of listed all the main different methods I think that I presented. Um, so you can expect that all of the, any of these methods could be the subject of questions in the test. So I broke them into two parts, methods that involve absorption and methods that involve emission. I mean, inherently you have both absorption and emission whenever you have light interacting with the sample, but these look at how much light is absorbed, these look at how much is emitted after a photon is absorbed. And there's all these different techniques because there's different things that you might want to do. There's different functions. So I've listed these functions over here, and if we can map these methods onto these functions, if you can do that, you're in good shape. So let's try to do that. Let's go through, first of all, um, just a reminder of what each method is. So what's meant by direct absorption? Send light in, look, see what it comes out. And look at, it, look at that as a frequency-dependent effect. Okay, frequency modulation spectroscopy. Anyone recall a homework that involved finding the frequency at which you had to modulate in order to minimize the noise? The idea there was that, like direct absorption, we're sending light in, we're measuring how much gets absorbed, but now we're going to dither the frequency of the incident light. And if the absorption is frequency dependent, then As we dither the frequency, the amount of absorption that we see is going to change. So the only thing that is there, like, you could be on a slope and it's going to, like, look non-linear kind of? Because the, not only are you changing the frequency, but you're changing the absorption part of the linear? Here, here, in frequency modulation spectroscopy, you're mapping out the slope of this function. In direct absorption, you're ma mapping out the value of the function. So you dither, you generally want to, well, you generally are only able to dither over very small frequencies relative to this line width. So as you have an oscillating frequency, that produces an oscillating output at that frequency. A lock-in detector can detect that particular frequency and separate it from all the DC background noise. So it circumvents some of the sensitivity limits on direct detection. Inner cavity absorption was another way 
to increase the effect of a small amount of absorption. So in order to improve sensitivity, you can put your sample inside a cavity. The cavity is very near threshold. If it's a laser cavity and it's very near threshold, a small amount of absorption can be the difference from having the laser oscillating or not. So as you tune the laser frequency over the absorption profile, you can get this amp nonlinear amplification of the effect of the absorption. Saturation spectroscopy didn't really have a name for it at the time we presented it, but we talked about the lamb dip or the Bennett hole being effects when you had saturation. And what was the unique property of that saturated profile that is interesting? Does anyone recall? So in more specific terms, maybe overly specific, but it's a way to avoid, a, if you have a Doppler broadened material or line transition, it's a way to observe line shapes that, are, that circumvent that Doppler broadened line width. That's the main benefit of that technique. So in more general terms, you can observe the homogeneous line width underneath an inhomogeneous line profile. So those are the absorption spectroscopy methods. Um, let's map these onto functions. So the first function is easily measure, easy method to relate observed spectrum to a, sam to a sample's energy level. So if you want to plot out the energy level of a sample, which of these there's more than one answer, but yes, direct absorption is very straightforward. Um, and every, every time the light gets absorbed, you, can, you know what frequency it's absorbing, you know where to draw a, a line on that energy level diagram. Pretty much all of these techniques, well, yeah, pretty much all the techniques. Yeah, so what you'd see is instead of this, you'd see this, which is the slope. But you still know the center wavelength. In fact, it's easier to determine the center wavelength here because it's zero crossing. And the line width actually is easier to measure too because the line width, it turns out for a Lorentzian, at least, from this maximum to that minimum is exactly the full width half max of a, of a Lorentzian line. So as a result, if you just want to know the wavelength and the, and the line width, you don't have to integrate it. You can just read it off. Okay, so it depends on what you mean by easy, but um, any of these methods can be pretty straightforwardly applied to that. Uh, how about differentiating species with similar absorption lines? Four. Okay, so they're similar in the sense that they sit underneath the same uh, Doppler-broadened line width, then yes. So saturation broadening is generally, this technique is generally going to be useful on gases. That's where the Doppler shift is, is most significant. Um, and it's particularly going to be important if you have multiple lines sitting within a Doppler broadened line. Okay, otherwise, this function is 
largely met by the emission spectroscopy method, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, Subdoppler method. Subdoppler measurements. Which of these can measure subdoppler? And just a saturation. Saturation spectroscopy is the only one here that can measure subdoppler. Uh, measuring concentration of atoms. What's that? Uh, so the emission, some, yeah, some, most of the emission ones will work. Most of the absorption ones will work as well. Right. The amount of absorption is proportional to the cross-section and the number density of atoms. So pretty much all, any of these will work. What method won't work? It's actually not written up here. We talked about it today. Jennifer, Raman spectroscopy. Raman spectroscopy can't be used to measure atoms. It can only measure molecules. That's why I put, it's, I put that up there for that reason, and then I didn't add Raman spectroscopy to my list. Um, okay, so measure concentration of molecules. Raman spectroscopy. Um, any of these, in theory, could measure the concentration of molecules. Raman spectroscopy is a little more suited to that, but. Um, Okay, measure trace amounts of a sample. So by trace, I mean small quantity, therefore you're gonna have small signal. What techniques are useful for that? So intercavity, frequency modulation, and these are both done to boost the amount of signal relative to the noise, right? Saturation, probably not so much. Um, It gets out DC and other low frequency noise. So any, like, you just, so the reason you say it's good is because there's, you don't want to get noise, you just get what you care about. Right. Okay. You get what you care about and you get any noise at the modulation frequency. But you can choose that frequency to be a point where the noise is minimized. Uh, any kind of cavity ring down? I didn't put cavity ring down spectroscopy up here actually. Um, Although I, that, would, that could be described as intercavity absorption. What I, when I put this up here, what I was thinking of was inside of a laser. We had a homework problem on this, right? Inside of a laser, you have some absorbing sample. As you tune the laser wavelength through that transition. But that certainly would describe cavity ring down spectroscopy as well. Okay, so the emission spectroscopy, I listed a few. Laser-induced fluorescence, remember, was you send your light in from your laser, you monitor the fluorescence coming out. If your incident light is not absorbed, there won't be fluorescence. If it is absorbed, there is fluorescence. So basically, it's measuring the same thing as the direct absorption, in a sense. When there's absorption, there will be fluorescence, assuming that. Um, but it allows you to measure a signal on top of a zero background. Whereas direct absorption, you're measuring a small dip in a large signal. So you can use photomultiplier tubes and some devices which have better sensitivity, but smaller dynamic range. It would, yeah. It's. It's. I would say it's. It's less suitable because the amount of of lift that you see depends not only on the amount of light that gets absorbed, which is what we'd measure with direct absorption, but then on the uh, 
efficiency of fluorescence. And that may be different for different energy levels. Uh, so you could see the different energy levels, but you might, might not be able to uh, as easily make statements about their relative strengths. Rempe. Anyone remember what resonant enhanced multiphoton ionization was? Two photons that together have enough energy to ionize the material. Um, so, what's the advantage of that, or what's the, why would you do that? Compared to LIF, one of the things is LIF works. Let's see. Rempe works. LIF doesn't work as well for complex molecules because you have lots of different energy levels that the light can fluoresce into. So, and you also have non-fluorescence decay. There's lots of vibration, collisions, trans, all sorts of uh, stretching and rotation that can occur in the molecule that can allow the pumped-in energy to decay without fluorescing. So generally, the fluorescence quantum yield of molecules is worse than atoms. So lift works pretty well for atoms, not so great for molecules. Rempe works as well for molecules. Is Rempe only going to tell you information about like, the highest energy level, or are you capable of seeing these increases? Well, you can, as you tune the, the wavelength that you're scanning, when that corresponds to a transition from the ground state to an intermediate energy level, a real energy level, that's when you'll see a large signal due to REM peak. Because then that intermediate energy level gets excited and then jumps up to the upper state. Um, REM peak is not good for measuring in the infrared, partly because you need a whole lot of infrared photons to ionize something. Right? REM peak is good when it only takes a few photons to ionize because each, each additional photon needs to land on a real energy level. So ideally, two photons could ionize it. So it's good for visible and ultraviolet. And now you measuring the current and measuring the actual You're measuring, yeah, like the current flowing through the sample when you apply a voltage. So you're measuring the amount of ionization. So you can measure it with unit efficiency, whereas the fluorescence you can't. That's another advantage over lift. Intermodulated fluorescence, two beams going in opposite directions, each modulated at different frequencies. If molecules are absorbing both photons, then their fluorescence is going to have a modulation term at the frequency difference. The only way a molecule absorbs photons that are both going in opposite directions, or say, will only absorb that within its natural line width. the laser is tuned more than the natural line width away, and even if the molecule is moving such that a photon is Doppler shifted to be in resonance, the photon in the opposite direction won't be Doppler shifted to be in resonance. So you won't get multi-photon. So anytime you cross beams, you're attempting to detect with uh, sub-Doppler limited detection. So this is... Or actually, 
That's one possibility. The other possibility is a single photon can excite it, but you're looking at saturation effects. So the harder you pump it, the less absorption there is. So that's a two-photon effect. Um, dispersed emission. So we pump a system into a higher energy state, and then as it emits light, you attempt to resolve the spectrum of the emitted light. So the fluorescence that comes off, you send through a spectrometer, and that tells you not, rather than measuring from the ground state, the energy levels that are above that ground state, you're essentially measuring from an excited state the energy levels that are below. Lift just takes all the light that's fluorescing, regardless of what wavelength it's at, and just puts it on a detector and says this is the total amount of power. And this is separating the light so that you can resolve the different um, energy levels that it's sticking to. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a form of lift where you get a little more information. Well, lift tells you at what pump wavelengths your material is absorbing. And this is telling you um, what decay what states it can decay to. And then stimulated emission pumping does something similar to dispersed emission, or it's telling you the same information. It's telling you what the lower energy level states are. But instead of requiring you to collect all this fluorescence that goes in every direction, a beam is being shined through the sample. And as that beam is tuned, when it passes through a resonant transition, it sucks all of the upper state population causes stimulated emission. And you get a reduction in the amount of fluorescence. Yeah, you use it as a laser amplifier. One laser pumps the amplifier, the other one drains it. And as you tune the probe laser, which drains it, you suppress fluorescence anytime that probe laser corresponds to a resonant frequency. So your setup would look like laser-induced fluorescence. You'd shine light into a sample. You'd measure all the fluorescence coming out, or as much as you can. The only difference is then you'd send in an additional laser. And as you tune that additional laser, you measure how the fluorescence, total fluorescence changes. OK, so going back to these functions, can we map different methods? onto functions. Um, let's see. Which of these would be useful for sub-Doppler measurements? Anyone that has multiple beams in opposite directions. So REMPI, intermodulated fluorescence, would be good for that. Um, No, because it's not right. So A, they have to be in orthogonal directions. And B, stimulated emission pumping. The two photons, it's not a simultaneous interaction. One is exciting it, and then one is causing an emission. It's not the two are interacting together at the same time to produce an excitation. Um, which of these would be useful for measuring trace amounts of sample. So which of these would be the most sensitive for detecting concentration? 
Okay, so REMPI could be. You have 100% detection of the ions. Um, you need to tune your pump laser, though, to a real transition before you get any absorption. So if you just wanted to detect whether something was there or not, um, you'd have to know ahead of time what wavelength to tune it to. So this is more of a system where you scan and then measure a spectrum. Um, certainly the lift could be used. And we so you frequently would. When you see trace amounts, what that means is you'd want to use experimental techniques to increase the interaction length. So a cavity or a delay line, a Harriet cell, they called it. Um, would be things you'd do. You'd use photomultiplier tubes as opposed to CCDs or, or, uh, or photodiodes. So by that, something wouldn't be like this first emission? Is that the spectrometer that gave you the photomultiplier? You would never use a, a spectrometer, a grading spectrometer, in an, when you're trying to detect trace concentrations or, the, or detect sort of the, uh, the lowest level. Right. So you'd use dispersed emission and stimulated emission pumping when you want to and really rempy for that matter, when you want to observe a series of energy levels and, and learn about the atom or molecule, not when you just want to detect whether or not it's there. So LIF is really the one that's most directly suited to that. So we did a homework where we compared the signal to noise of an absorption measurement versus a, uh, versus a LIF measurement using photomultipliers. And you were given sort of characteristic values for the noise in a photomultiplier and a photodiode. We saw the, the lift technique had better sensitivity than the absorption technique. Okay, if you understand that, you're in really good shape because this is what you'll be given on the test. Those are some diagrams from actual experiments that I found in the literature. And these are the first two questions. Okay, so if you can't read that, I will help you out. Look at those five diagrams and explain which of these five experiments those are measuring. Okay, so for example, measure trace concentrations of methane in a sample of gas. Analyze the energy levels of a crystal to evaluate its suitability for use as a laser. Okay, so you'll have to identify, based on the different things that are in the experiments, what functions are likely performing, and then you'll need to map from the functions given these specific applications, which functions are important. Okay. And then the second question, pick one of those experiments, find five different parts of the experiment, five different optics or sort of functional blocks, and explain why they're there. How do they help you, how do, they help you do this? How do they help you increase the signal? How do they help you remove the noise? How do they help you something like that? Okay. So there would be four